the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black in Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Welcome to the show. I am your host for the day, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. Probably be back tomorrow. Rob and I will be together on Thursday night in Palo Alto at the Elks Club. It's not the traditional Elks Club. I, I remember growing up with my grandfather. I like to have lunch at the Elks Club. and This is around the Northwest and kind of dark, kind of roast beef sandwich kind of places. This is, this is like a, a nice... Elks Club, so, of course, leave it to Palo Alto to create something like that. But Rob Black and I will be there Thursday, 6.30 p.m., talking all about retirement income planning, tips on Social Security, bonds, and bond alternatives in today's market. You can sign up, robblack.com, that's robblack.com, or chadburden.com. If you want to, if you're listening to the show today and you want to get in for free, avoid the $5 fee, shoot me an email, chad at chadburden.com, and I'll give you the free code. Now, this week in the markets, big week for banks. Well, I know, if we look at FactSet, financial stocks are poised to have the highest earnings growth rate of any sector for the fourth quarter of 2013. Financials are the second largest sector weight in the S&P 500, and it's only behind technology. And so if you look at XLF, which is an ETF which covers the financial sector, it's a basket of financial stocks, it's got $17.2 billion in assets. It's the 17th largest ETF in terms of assets under management or, or assets inside held within XLF. Today, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan reported. Citi and Bank of America report later this week. So it's a big week, week for banks. Wells Fargo, the largest U.S. home lender, posted record fourth quarter and full-year profit that beat Wall Street estimates as expense cuts bolstered results. Net income advanced 10% for the quarter to a buck a share. The average estimate from Bloomberg was 98 cents a share when they when Bloomberg surveyed about 33 analysts there. For the full year profit rose 16% to 21.9 billion with a B. Now, the CEO John Stoff, he's, he's trimming staff pretty aggressively. Expenses as rising interest rates curtail demand for home refinancing. And Wells Fargo, they vowed to reduce overhead after expenses surged above its target the previous three months. And boy, have they done it. I've known people in several different cities that worked in the mortgage side, mostly the processors, get cut after being so happy for having a job again 
the same people. That's a tough industry to be in when you're so subject to interest rates. Now, Jennifer Thompson, an analyst for Port Sales Partners LLC in New York, said they've been taking a lot of costs out of the mortgage business. Everybody's seen the headlines. Revenue slid 6% in the quarter from a year earlier and 3% for the full year. Profits before taxes and provisions fell about 5%. So really kind of overall mixed results. So the question is for Wells Fargo is mortgage demand falls. Can they cut costs fast enough? And what will the crossover be when the net interest margin, which is the difference between what the bank makes on lending and pays for funds, will that increase at a fast enough rate as interest rates rise to offset the mortgage demand? Well, net interest margin, something that you want to pay attention to in the long run, fell to 3.26% from 3.38% in the third quarter. So not a good trend there in the fourth quarter. We did get bonds settling a little bit. Of course, we've got the 10-year Treasury all the way back down to, to 2.84%, almost 2.85, when it was over 3 just not too long ago. So this is what you're going to see kind of in the bond area when you get these jump in interest rates. There's a panic wave of selling almost too far, and then people find some of the value in some of those areas. Speaking of that, I'll talk about bonds coming up later in the show, kind of the results for 2013. And what people are going to be looking at is they look at their 401k statements. It's going to be interesting because they're going to see, first of all, the fourth quarter of 2008, which was a huge decline of over 19% in 2008. That fourth quarter number is falling off all of the stock fund results. So when people are looking at the five-year track records of the fund choices in their 401k, they're not seeing that anymore. It's going to make the five-year track record look amazingly better. At the same time, you're seeing negative results for the full year on most bond funds. Will that cause the next rotation? We'll see. Now, a little bit more on Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is responsible for about one in five U.S. mortgages. And, of course, as the Federal Reserve has, you know, stimulated the economy, so they think, with buying our own U.S. treasuries, inflating their balance sheets, rates on the 30-year mortgage went from 3.35% in early May, all the way up to 4.51% average last week. So that's that's quite a change, and that definitely curtails demand, especially in a situation where we've had an investor-led housing recovery. An investor-led housing recovery. Think of all the demand from just look in the Bay Area and see the multiple all-cash offers from investment bankers on single-family homes. And what's interesting to watch is is this is going to decline. Everybody's expecting and knows that mortgage demand is going to decline because of higher interest rates, but also you're seeing negative numbers on household formations. People just aren't getting married and having kids lately. It's a negative boom here. So it kind of looks like Japan a little bit. Now, J.P. Morgan, they also reported quarterly profit fell 7.3%, $2.6 billion settlements tied to Bernie Madoff on the Ponzi scheme. Basically what happened is they weren't really monitoring the fact that he was using his account to fund this Ponzi scheme. Now, it just blows me away. You, you listen to CNBC after 5 o'clock, and they got the guy with the deep voice telling you about the, the all of the scams and everything else. With that. When people promise you returns that are too good to be true, guarantees over 5 or 6%, consistent quarter after quarter after quarter of the same return, and they're printing their own statements. In other words, you don't have a brokerage firm like Schwab or TD Ameritrade or Fidelity 
sending you the statements that your money manager is 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 managing the account for you, you have the ability to get scammed. That's what happened here. So don't be that person. Anyways, fourth quarter uh, net income for J.P. Morgan declined to a buck thirty a share from a buck thirty nine a year earlier, but it was still better than expected. Jamie Dimon whittling down the firm's list of legal woes. I mean, gosh, twenty three billion on legal settlements, legal set- settlements last year. Twenty three billion. Revenue did drop one point one percent. Earnings at the corporate and investment bank tumbled 57%. They had, what they're doing is they had to write down some derivatives, some over-the-counter derivatives uh, to incorporate funding costs. That's what's so tough on these, on these banks. The big buy point for financials to outperform the S&P 500 seemed to be in 2010. Now, obviously, the, the, the momentum is still going the right way on these areas, but, you know, a lot of people are all are light banking sector especially these large banks, because they're hard to figure out what's on the balance sheet with the major amount of derivatives. So it's going the right direction, but when you look at it, mortgage fees and related income dropped 46%. Want to get your calls in the air if you have a money question, taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. As a certified financial planner with a team of five other CFPs around me besides myself, if you've got a money question, you want a second opinion on anything you're dealing with, or you want to comment on business of the economy, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. So, again, we got a 1.1% decrease in revenue for J.P. Morgan. So there's a lot tied to the banking sector in terms of earnings growth. We're seeing another situation of actually a little bit light on the revenue, a decline, in fact. So it's going to be that's going to be the story for this quarter's earnings. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. To Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. So have you got the goods? Welcome to the show. I'm your host today, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you got a money question, any money question besides individual stock, buy, hold, or sell, so taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, investing, comments, some business to the economy, 800 516 1220. That's 800 516 1220. Today through the show, We've got, uh, well, first of all, coming up next segment, we're going to have Patrick O'Hare of Briefing.com. Always a good talk. Talk about retail sales. Kind of some mixed results because December, better than expected. November revised downward. Motor vehicle sales down a tad. So we'll talk about that and some other issues. Today, a little later in the show, I'm going to talk about when to take Social Security. We'll talk about how important dividends are in cash, a certain amount of cash is in retirement. And uh, if you want details on that stuff, too, don't forget to sign up for the event Rob Black and I are doing in Palo Alto this Thursday, 6.30 p.m., Elks Club in Palo Alto, all about retirement income planning, how to set up your portfolio, when to rebalance, how much cash, what types of bonds are still okay, bond alternatives, things like that. That's Sign up at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. If you want to shoot me an email, you're listening to the show today, chat at chadburton.com. I'll give you the code to get in for free. It's $5 to get in, but I'll give you the free code. So 
Let's talk about bonds, and also we'll talk about bond alternatives a little bit later in the show. But let's, let's just give you an update on the markets overall in 2014. The S&P 500 with dividends reinvested up almost 32.4%. Now, I like to look at the NASDAQ U.S. Dividend Achievers Index. That is a group of companies that have a history of raising their dividend. And that is a very important key component in retirement planning. Explain a little bit more of that later in the show, but that index is up 26.31%. So first time in a while that the that index has underperformed the S&P 500. In the long run, though, if you look at something like a dividend achiever fund through Vanguard, the average return over the last 10 years is 9.03 versus 7.39 on the S&P 500. So something to consider in the long term in terms of the consistency. The Russell 2000, stellar year. That's basically small cap stocks, up 37%. MSCA, IFA, international stocks, more of the developed stocks, still another stellar year. People think of international as being horrible. Last year was up 22.78%. Emerging markets, though, down 2%. Started off the year down about 3% as well. Lately, over the last couple of trading days, though, we've seen that on an update for the U.S., emerging markets have been better and not down as bad. So we, we want to see that trend, which really affected emerging markets as a whole is currency flows out of the areas that have done so well with currency and their funding. As interest rates have come up in the U.S., our dollars look more attractive, so money has flowed back into the U.S. That's put a strain on certain emerging markets in terms of their currency, and it's made inflation an issue in places like India. But everybody has known that. Those issues are, are real. I'm starting to see many emerging market managers uh, move back into places like India or invest in places where the currency issue isn't as much, like Mexico, for example. That's what people are talking about a lot. I would not try to be have your core positions and ETFs or indexes in these areas going forward because I think that currency issue, there's going to be specific companies and even bad places that look attractive that the manager might be able to find. Or, because most managers aren't so country-specific, they're more, let's go find good companies in areas it doesn't really matter. In other words, a whole country might be selling down, but it could be a company in that country that makes most of its revenue from outside of the country, and they're being beat down excessively as a result. Dow Jones Wilshire Reed Index, 0.13% for the year. Not much of a return there. And Barclays Capital Aggregate Bond Index down about 2%. So let's look at overall bonds. You can do this pretty easily. If you go to Vanguard site, look at their mutual funds, click on the bond funds. You can kind of see how, how this goes down. So if we look at the overall total bond market index, if you were in a total bond market fund, down 2.15% last year. Short-term bond indexes were flat at about 0.17% return. So that's less than what you'd get if you're sitting in an FDIC-insured money market. Go to bankrate.com. You can find those all day long. FDIC-insured money markets for around 0.9% oh, or so. Long-term government bond index, if you were in those in your 401k and you didn't listen to the warnings, down 12.74%. Down 12.74%. Intermediate government bonds, down 2.74%. TIPS, down almost 9%. That's Treasury Inflation Protected Bonds. As you went through the year last year, inflation became more and more tame. Ginny Mays, popular area with retired investors. Down 2.2%. Intermediate term corporate bonds down 2%. Short term corporate bonds flat. High yield corporate bonds are the ones that buck the trend. 
up 4.54% for the year, which is effectively right now at about the yield. So what do you hold going forward? The idea is that most projections are calling for the 10-year bond to yield about 3.5% by year end. And you better hope it does. You better hope interest rates go up, because what that means is the economy is standing on its own. The feds can start to taper and get out of the game. I do not want to deal with the Federal Reserve manipulating markets for the long term of my career. I really do not. Until then, they are providing a backstop. How they exit it, who knows. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet has has blown up. It's blown up. So in the long run, they've already told us as they begin to taper, the bonds that they have, so, so they're going from $85 billion a month of purchases. So basically the Federal Reserve, they get their money, right? Printed money, essentially. And they're buying $85 billion a month. Now they're buying $75 billion a month. Still very stimulative. And as the bonds that they already own mature, they'll still reinvest those. When does this end? When does their balance sheet shrink? Do they eventually take the money as the bonds mature at some point in time in the future, if the economy stands on its own, give it back to the Treasury to pay down debt? I mean, we don't know, right? So you have to be very, very vigilant when it comes to your overall portfolio and especially in the area of bonds. You know, I love it if interest rates are high and stable or high and coming down. Just do individual bonds, hold them till maturity, and create a bond ladder in retirement. That's not where we are right now. And there's certain areas that are selling up and down where managers can buy, find some value. It's kind of like in 2009, we saw a lot of value in high-yield bonds. It had double-digit returns in those areas. Double-digit returns in bonds. But it's not that easy right now. So what can you still own in your overall portfolio in terms of bond funds? If you're owning long-term government treasuries, and you look at it, and if your effective, your average maturity or duration is over seven in the bond fund that you own, you've got some issues. You've got interest rate sensitivity that you probably don't want. So the way that we split it up is some bond alternatives, which is something that's, you know, the goal of it is to beat cash, not lose money in a rising rate environment. Provide some extra liquidity. I'll talk about unconstrained bonds and global bonds coming back after the break. If you want to get your calls in the air, ask a money question. 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Or you can shoot me an email. Chad at chadburton.com. Coming up, we got Patrick O'Hare from briefing.com. We'll be back. Black online at robblack.com. Now, back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host for the day, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. One of the first places I look when I check the markets in the morning is briefing.com and the page one report. So joining me right now is Chief Market Strategist, Patrick O'Hare. Patrick, how are you? Hi, Chad. I'm doing fine. Thank you. 
Good, good. I love that page one report because it gives me just a, a quick rundown on, on all the news that hits. You know, being on the West Coast, you can wake up a little or, or, you know, a little later than you guys, right? <laughs> right. Well, thank let you. you let you guys do all the work at a decent hour. We can wake <laughs> up, check everything at about 5.30 or 6 and, and be up to date. So thanks for doing all that at briefing.com. Let's talk about retail sales. Give me your thoughts. Uh, give me the rundown on, on what happened in retail sales today. Sure. Well, the uh, the headline uh, numbers certainly were, were better than expected. Um, you know, with uh, total sales, we're up to two-tenths of one percent. Our consensus forecast called for unchanged, and excluding autos, they were up 0.7 percent, and our consensus forecast called for uh, up 0.4 percent. So so that that was a good thing. You know, it was nice to see the headline surprise. However, uh, it was diluted somewhat by the fact that you saw a downward revision to, uh, to the November results. So you were essentially growing off of you know, basically a lower base. So the the strength was perhaps not as robust as it appeared at first blush. But the thing that we uh, tend to concentrate on, though, when it comes to these retail sales reports are what are called core retail sales. And core retail sales exclude autos, gasoline station, and building material sales. And when we look at that metric, that was up a robust 0.7%. And the encouraging thing there is that that's a number that's correlates more closely with the consumption trends you're going to see in the fourth quarter GDP report. So from that standpoint, uh, we can say that the December retail sales report was a good one in relation to uh, expectations for fourth quarter GDP. So fourth quarter GDP likely to be coming in pretty strong for the overall year. What, what do you expect the final number to be for 2013? What, give, give us the idea of uh, what sure. growth looked like. I mean, we had a big number last quarter, but what, what about right. for the full year? Yeah, well, for the full year, it's not likely to be, uh, you know, gangbusters by any means. I mean, the long-term trend is a little bit uh, above 3% and probably going to be more in the area of, uh, you know, closer to maybe 2.5% um, in 2013. Uh, our forecast, our economist, uh, Jeff Rosen, uh, who I know speaks with uh, Rob regularly as well, um, is calling for a similar growth rate in 2014, notwithstanding some of the bubbling of enthusiasm surrounding the improving growth prospects uh, as they have related to incoming data of late. Um, part of that forecast is predicated really on the idea that we kind of have seen this pattern repeat itself um, several years now where you get these the, the boost in these economic growth expectations picking up at the end of a year uh, only to be dashed uh, as the new year unfolds and then you see economists start marking down their forecast. So I think he, you know, he's more in the sense of a, a wait and see mode. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding and uh, he's not ready to eat that pudding yet. So we're just uh, looking for a, a still a somewhat below trend growth rate in 2014. So let's talk about that, that below trend because what we're seeing is companies adding to the bottom line by cutting costs, by buying back their own shares. We saw results from Wells and J.P. Morgan, and banks are supposed to lead the way in earnings growth, but that's bottom line. So where are we supposed to look for top line or revenue growth in 2014? Right. Well, good question, and and probably you know may not surprise you, Chad. I think doing it as long as you've done it is that you know. Analysts are generally expecting good things as they relate to both revenue and earnings growth uh, through 2014. And, of course, you see a lot of uh, what is known as hockey stick forecasting, where the early part of the year is not exactly looking for strong growth. But as you get into those out quarters, the back half of the year, all of a sudden you see these tremendous double-digit growth expectations. But all in all, um, you know, the S&P 500 expected to see revenue growth of about 4% in 2014, and that's 
uh, expected to be led by the healthcare, consumer discretionary, and information technology sectors, all of which are anticipated to report revenue growth on the order of about 5 to 6%. But uh, noticeably, uh, none of the consensus forecasts call for an actual earnings decline in any of the 10 economic sectors in 2014, but you do have energy bringing up the rear with a, a scant 0.3% uh, projected growth rate uh, for this year. Yeah, now, is that with the idea that a deal, some sort of a comprehensive deal with Iran will, will continue to put pressure down on oil prices? I think that that does probably relate to it, um, you know, in addition to the, uh, as well as the influx of new supply from the, you know, from shale gas as well, and uh, the expectation that there's going to just continue to be, uh, not only the with the deal with Iran, but you have more oil perhaps coming online from Iraq and Libya as well, uh, so you are couching this against this expectation that uh, supplies will probably continue to run ahead of demand and thereby, you know, lowering prices uh, for oil, which which would in turn, you know, weigh on that, uh, the top line there for those energy companies, the major uh, oil companies. So no decline at all in, in, in revenue, essentially, for really any of the sectors in the S&P 500, except for possibly energy. What about housing? I mean, now we're starting to see, okay, people realize that it's an investor-led housing recovery, right? I mean, anybody that's tried to sell a home in the Bay Area has got multiple offers from, you know, investment bankers, right. for example. And we're seeing household formations decline, probably because youth unemployment is up. What about housing? And then also, at the same time, we saw vehicle sales down or motor vehicle sales down 1.8%. So how is, what, what type of shape is the, the retail the, the the consumer in right now. Sure, sure. Well, the interesting thing about the, the retail sales report, which we could have added earlier, I should have added earlier, is that, you know, it was a little bit surprising relative to what we heard in the December employment report, uh, where aggregate wages actually were down slightly. And so uh, there was a presumption that you might see a, a disappointing retail sales report, perhaps retail sales turned negative, but the fact that they were still positive, what that suggests to us is that consumers are likely either tapping into their savings uh, to continue their spending ways or, in fact, are just buying on credit. Um, now, probably can look at that in one of two ways. You could say that, uh, well, that means they're just going to be pressed even further as 2014 goes along, uh, or you could say that it reflects a measure of confidence in the outlook in that they're willing to dip into their savings or buy on credit because perhaps they think that their job secure, uh, their jobs are more secure or that their uh, job finding abilities are greater than, you know, they are currently. So that will all flush itself out obviously in due time. But as it relates to the state of the consumer right now, um, you'd have to say that the consumers in okay shape. Uh, we certainly have seen debt levels get paired considerably here since the uh, Great Recession uh, started, and you are seeing job growth pick up, um, and uh, and clearly you're seeing, you know, notwithstanding the decline in auto sales in December, uh, some some pretty good spending on durables, uh, autos, and uh, and the and home appliances, and you know, and the like, and uh, and we've seen housing spending pick up, obviously. So consumer could be in better shape and will be in better shape as the labor market continues to improve, but doing just well enough here to kind of underpin an economy that still lacks a great big push
source from business investment, uh, i.e. capital expenditures to build factories, uh, to reinvest in equipment, as well as to, you know, continue to expand those workforces. And we're not getting that push yet, but if you do see a ramp up in business investment, you could see growth uh, indeed surprise on the upside in 2014. Well, the cash has got to go somewhere, right? I mean, it's either going to go into investment or it's going to go into acquisitions. Today, Google acquiring Nest Labs for $3.2 billion in cash. We're starting to see M&A pick up a little bit. Is that anything that you look at as a strategist at briefing.com? Well, you know, I think so, and, uh, you know, it's a good point you make. I mean, there's so much cash that's there, and if you have these companies, say, for instance, if, if the argument is that they're not investing because they aren't trusting that demand is going to pick up considerably to justify the investment, then perhaps what they do is they go out and purchase market share, right? So they look for, uh, you know, some competition to take out, uh, you know, at a reasonable price, so to speak. But, you know, one of the problems there is you've seen uh, certainly within the public traded realm, stock prices run up so considerably that uh, the premium a lot of companies are are demanding for a takeout, uh, you know, perhaps puts a lid on some of the uh, M&A expansion potential, but uh, for some of the smaller privately held companies, you know, you're seeing that uh, those cash deals get done, and uh, and you'll probably continue to see that, and, and things pick up on the M&A front in 2014 because there is so much cash at their disposal, and, and in turn, you'll probably see companies uh, use that cash also to continue to buy back their stock and help uh, push up their, uh, their EPS growth uh, as well. So another year of pretty much bottom line revenue growth could be achieved through cutting costs, through buybacks, possibly through acquisitions. Over that, that takes a while. Who's going to be the benefactor of this? Big big banks like a, the the Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan's like kind of facilitate those M and A, um, or is it really just a kind of a small and mid cap play? Those are the companies that are going to be taken out. Yeah, um, well, you will, it won't hurt the big banks, you know, obviously, if to see, you know, pick up in the, that M&A realm, um, that's, you know, their bread and butter in the investment banking side of things. And so, so that could be a positive there as it relates to some earnings prospects as the year unfolds. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the small, the mid-cap realms are obviously the target-rich environments. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously difficult to pinpoint any one company at any given time as, the, as a likely, you know, takeover play. But, um, but and, and keep in mind too, they also have had some really big runs in terms of their stock prices, and so right. uh, you know companies have to be conscientious about you know the return on their investment, and and will probably be pretty deliberate in their efforts in terms of assessing whether a, you know a buyout is going to you know do them well in the long term there. But yeah, sure. but yeah, yeah, they're all they're all wishing they would have bought the stocks last year when they were they didn't have the thirty percent plus run. Exactly. All right, we've been speaking with Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Strategist at Briefing.com. Check out the website, love it, briefing.com. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you want to get your calls in the air, 
Welcome back to the show. I'm your host for the day, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. You got a money question? Taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning? I can help you out. 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. So, again, I, it's, I was talking earlier in the show about bond funds, and Ginny Mae's down about 2.2%. Intermediate term corporate bonds down about 2%. Got tips down 9 Long-term government bond funds down about 12%. So if you didn't heed the warning, you got smacked in that area on, on the bond portfolios. Now, should you just flee from bonds altogether? Well, what caused those returns? It was really one major quarter last year that created that big dip in most bond funds. If you look at the quarter-by-quarter quarter returns, when bonds went from like 1.7 to over 25 2.7% in a very short period of time, it the 20-plus years I've been in the business, I never saw interest rate jump like that, just on the idea of a taper. And then the market, the Fed disappointed the market, did not taper, and then they did. I doubt we see another whiplash like that. You could always be wrong, though, and I don't like to forecast in the short term. I do agree with most long-term forecasts for the 2014 that rates will rise about a half a percent on the 10-year Treasury, about 3.5%. If they go more, it means that the economy is firing on all cylinders, that Unemployment comes down. Now, we're seeing the participation rate shrink. Now, 10,000 people are turning 65 every day, so that's going to happen a bit as people retire. There might be some people that they got laid off during the recession at age 62, so they're collecting unemployment, and they finally decide, I'm going to take my Social Security and, and just call it quits and shrink out of the workforce. So you got to keep that in mind. It's a little bit tough. You don't want to watch one quarter and think that that's the trend. It's three or four quarters. So far, the basic economic news is good. We are going in the right direction. It's not rapid growth. It's the 2.5% range type of growth. We could probably have another year where companies can continue to cut costs to increase their earnings, continue to buy back their shares to increase their earnings. They've refinanced all their debt. You could do some acquisitions and mergers to, to help in the long run. We've got some revenue issues. Now, people, this is, what's going to be interesting is how people look at their 401k fund choices. You need to rebalance your 401k at least once a year. Most of you can go in and once you pick your asset allocation that you're comfortable with, you can turn on the uh, automatic rebalancer where every quarter or every six months or every one year it rebalances. If you're doing one year, every year you need to go through all of your 401k choices. Choices change. They replace one large-cap manager with another. You might have a large-cap fund, and what if the manager of that fund leaves and, and, and a new guy's taking it over, a new gal, and you don't even know their track record? Well, you might want to move on to something else. And people are going to look at their returns if, if they're stuck in a long-term government bond fund and they didn't heed warnings. I've talked about with Rob on the show. They're going to look at those losses and say, oh, wow, the S&P 500, look at how well it's done over the last five years. Because now the fourth quarter of 2008, which is a 19% decline, is now off the books. So the five-year track record looks impeccable. That could cause that next rotation as people hear about rising rates and they hear about how good the stock market's done, and they chase returns. So don't just chase returns. Don't look at emerging markets and say, oh, it was negative last year slightly, so I don't want to touch that. If you have a good manager, they might be able to find some bargains over the long run. This is a three- to five-year game when you're doing rebalancing. It's not, what am I going to get in the next six months? You have to look at it, especially as you're closer and closer to retirement, say, I still want to get the majority of gains. I want to get a portion of gains. But if the flip side, if the other side of the story happens, 
the negative side, an outside event, some sort of a major bomb going off somewhere in the Middle East, uh, something unexpected happen in politics. If the unexpected thing happens, what's your strategy then? What, what do you do in the decline? Because most people right now have gone outside their risk tolerance. They might be comfortable, theoretically, with a 65-35 type of a stock or growth versus defensive split, and now they're at 75 or 80%, and those are the same people that will panic on the downside. If you don't panic on the downside and you just manage your portfolio and stay in good investments, and I'm not saying buy and hold and hope forever, but make adjustments to make sure you're in quality, you can weather the storm as long as you're not drawing on the portfolio. So let's talk about the portfolio a little bit. Before I uh, brought Patrick O'Hare on briefing.com, I was talking about some of the bonds out there and some of the, what do we still own? Now, clients that are close to your at retirement, they own a certain percentages in bond alternatives, which I'll talk about next hour. What are still okay to own right now? What does our bond portfolio look like? Well, you got to have some alternative strategy, basically an alternative fund that kind of keeps some powder dry but supposed to be better than cash and not lose money in rising rates. So alternative bonds, short-term, fine. Then we also look at an unconstrained bond fund. Now, I like it, like I said, if, if interest rates are high and stable or high and coming down, laddering a bond portfolio, buying individual bonds and holding maturity is great. But I think rates are going to be higher in a year or two. So why would I want to do that now? I want to stay liquid. I want to stay flexible. And if interest rates continue to rise, I don't want to have negative returns. An unconstrained bond manager, sometimes they're called strategic income funds. You really got to take a look at them. And you don't want the big, widely held retail ones. You want smaller, nimble managers, well-known, good history. So you got to get to know the managers. An unconstrained bond fund, you can look at it and you can see that they might have some short holdings where they use derivatives to hedge against rising rates. And you're going to look for ones that have an average maturity and an average duration of under six. That means its sensitivity to interest rate is lower than the average. You can also still hold some global bonds now, especially after they've had a decline last year, well-known decline. You want an average duration of under six, and you also want that global bond manager to be able to hedge against currency issues that are occurring. That's an important part of that. So those are still, you can still hold them. Everybody knows what's going to happen with rates. They're going to probably go up if the numbers continue to be good. So don't be selling everything. Just be a better investor. Do a little bit more homework. Want to get your calls in the air, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. We'll be right back. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black. Insightful. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in, we'll chat, and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome to the show. This is not Rob Black. I'm your host for the day, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. 
I will be with Rob on Thursday evening in Palo Alto at the Elks Club. We're going to be talking all about retirement income planning, how to set up the portfolio, how much cash you need, stocks versus bonds, how to rebalance, calculating the cost of retirement, and some of the bond alternatives that I use. And I'm going to talk about right now. And I'm also going to talk about an example of somebody that, that didn't listen and went way too aggressively into an early retirement. So we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what is a bond alternative? And, and you look at, we've been talking about on the show today, how long-term bonds, long-term government bonds, got hammered by about 12% last year. The average bond fund was down anywhere from negative 2 to negative 4% in 2013. And will rates rise as much? I doubt they'll go. I mean, the biggest, the biggest decline causer, if that's a word, it's a term I'm going to make up, is, uh, I believe it was the second quarter of 2013. Well, basically, it was the May to July time frame when the 10-year Treasury rose at, at the most rapid pace I've seen in history. And that caused a big decline in a lot of bond funds. The same bond funds were still flat to positive for the second quarter, or the third and the fourth quarter of the year. So you kind of got to look and dig into how your fund, on a quarter-by-quarter basis, reacted. And keep in mind that you're probably going to see a half a percent increase at least, in the 10-year treasury. You better hope so. That means the economy is improving and people are going back to work. But we have a problem here. We have an epidemic in America. And that epidemic is people are retiring at the rate of 10,000 a month. That's how many people turn 65 right now. 10,000 a month. So they're retiring. They've already had a big run-up from the bottom of the stock market. And interest rates are half of what they were for their parents. CDs are paying a quarter of what they were for their parents. So that 4% rule in retirement where you hear that term, if you're 65 years old, you can draw 4 or 5% of your portfolio, and as long as you're invested correctly, each year you can bump it up a little bit for inflation and have enough money to live till the day you die. That is a major challenge right now because of where our interest rates are. It's, it's tough because when your traditional numbers that you see on those reports, anywhere from... 40 to 60 percent in stocks and the in the opposite in bonds. And so when your bonds are paying half, when 40 to 60 percent of your portfolio is producing half of the income that it used to, you might run into some problems. You might be retiring too soon. You might deal with a declining lifestyle later in life if you don't do something about it. And so one of those things is bond alternatives. Now I don't didn't sell all of our bonds, obviously. There's still some places to go. I've been talking about unconstrained bond funds, global bond funds that have the ability to hedge currency, where you have a manager. I do not like ETFs in those areas in any way, shape, or form because many local currency debt markets in terms of overseas are attractively valued. However, there's a lot of countries with large current account deficits where the money's flowing out, and those are the vulnerable ones. You've got to let a manager pick this for you and hedge, be able to hedge against currencies. But... If you're five years from retirement or in retirement, a good chunk of the portfolio, maybe up to half of what you traditionally have in bonds, which would be maybe 20% of everything, should be in bond alternatives. Now, people buy bonds for either their the income or the safety of getting their their money back at the end of the period for a good corporation. So when you lend money to a corporation, it's called a bond. They pay you interest at the end of that period. They give you your money back, right? Well... When interest rates are stable or coming down, you can buy bonds to maturity. If I pay a certain amount for a bond, get get interest and get that money back at the end of the period. 
right now most good bonds are trading at a premium because people are hunting for yield. So you might be paying 110 bucks for the bond and get 100 bucks back at the end of the period, right? And so you got to look at the yield to maturity, which is different than the, the, the coupon rate you look at at the bond. And as interest rates rise, the value of the bond on paper will decline. So if you're in bond funds, which is what most people have in their 401k, people interest rates go up, people see the net asset value of the pricing of the bond fall, then they sell, they force the manager to sell at a bad time. If they don't have enough cash on hand, when all the lemmings run off the cliff and sell, that can work against you. So right now, laddering a bond portfolio to me doesn't make a lot of sense when, number one, we don't know what the long-term effects of inflation are when it comes to what the Federal Reserve is doing in terms of the bond buying and the quantitative easing, which is extraordinary monetary stimulus. So what if inflation kicks up in three years? It's not going to kick up this year. I don't expect any inflation. I don't expect a reason for you to own a lot of commodity funds, tips or things like that, because we're not going to see much inflation this year. I don't know what's going to happen this year. I want to be very flexible and what I'm doing. So a good bond alternative means one of two things. You're an investor that's either that's that you're looking for a safety of principle or a very high probability that you're going to get your money back in something. Most people have a safety of principle in mind. And so when you're looking at a bond alternative, you're either going to look for safety of principle with a potential return more than bonds or if your main goal is income, the bond alternative would allow you to take more risk with your bond money, but have some sort of an income backup that you can't outlive. Some sort of an income backup that you can't outlive. So in other words, if that you end up taking more money, a risk with that money, and that does not pay off because you have market declines or rapidly rising rates that can really hurt the value of the portfolio, you can sleep at night saying, okay, I took more risk with this money, but I'm passing off the income risk to, say, a high-rated insurance company. Now, when I say this, I'm not talking about a variable annuity anymore. A lot of people go to brokers or people that call themselves advisors and they work on commission, and they sell you products. They say, here's this variable annuity. It looks like mutual funds, but the insurance company comes along, puts a wrapper on it, and gives you 5 or 6% income no matter what the portfolio does for as long as you live, no matter how long you live. That's all fine and dandy, but most of the people that I find that get put into these things that have surrender charges of 5 to 10 years long, when I sit down, to them, I sit down with them and explain the overall fees inside of this, where you have the sub-account fees, which are similar to mutual funds, then you have mortality and expense costs, and then you have a cost for that income rider. There is no free lunch on Wall Street. Many of these variable annuities, people would not have bought them if the fees were explained to them. And a spreadsheet was run on, here's line A. If you invest in this type of a portfolio directly with this cost versus the higher cost of a variable annuity, here's what's left over for your spouse or your heirs when you die. Most people would have not bought it. Now, we have talked about some no-load variable annuities that are out there right now that do this income guarantee option where you can invest in a balanced portfolio, and the insurance company says, okay, no matter what happens to the portfolio, we'll guarantee income of 5 or 6% or as long as you live. So the income guarantee is always based on the claims-paying ability of the insurance company, number one. And number two, the no-load, since there's no surrender charges, you have flexibility. 
If you want to go back and just do a laddered bond portfolio like I talked about three or four years down the road, you can get out of it without paying any penalties. There's no commissions involved, so the person that's advising you to do it, or if you do it on your own, it's because from a fiduciary angle, saying, hey, we're looking for a bond alternative. Here is one. But the still, the, the, you know, the fees are high. The fees are, even in the no-load options, the fees are high. And now there's an annuity killer out there that has killed the need for anybody to go into variable annuities unless you're already stuck in one with a high gain. So I'll talk about the annuity killer as a bond alternative. Coming back from the break, if you want to get your calls in the air, 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220. Market Minute. There goes the last DJ. Visit Rob Black online at robblack.com. Now, back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. I'm going to be with Rob Black this Thursday at Palo Alto Elks Club, 6.30 p.m., all about retirement income planning, setting up portfolios, when to rebalance, how much cash, how much does retirement really cost, now, the traditional investor in retirement goes anywhere between 60 and 40% in fixed income, with fixed income and CDs and things like that paying anywhere from 25% to 50% of what your parents earned in retirement. What do you do? So we're talking bond alternatives. Now, a lot of people ended up in variable annuities sold by bankers and commission brokers. And the variable annuity says, hey, no matter what this portfolio does, well, the insurance company will guarantee income of 5 to 6% for life. And you look at the internal fees, and a lot of them are at 3.5%. So if you purchased a variable annuity and you're, you had a surrender charge lockup 5 to 10 years, your internal fees are probably not worth the income guarantee that you get. If you look at the long run, even over the last two decades on how portfolios have returned in a balanced portfolio, they've done well. They haven't lost money even with the big corrections that we've seen over the last two decades. So you're kind of paying the insurance company for something that you don't need at that level. Now, to a certain extent, it might be worth it. There were some no-load options that say, okay, if I'm going to have bond money and I want higher income than bonds, it means I typically have to take more risk in order to get some growth somewhere, like out of stocks, but I'm not comfortable with taking that much risk, so I want to pass the income for life risk or the longevity risk off to an insurance company. There's some no-load variable annuities to do that, but you don't even need to do that anymore. Through area, Transamerica, a division of Transamerica, had, has come up with basically a portfolio insurance. So you can get that what looks like a variable annuity in terms of an income for life in a portfolio, but you don't need to be in an annuity with all those extra fees. The way that this thing works is you, you as an investor, you say, okay, here's how much money I have in bonds. But bonds aren't paying me a lot, and if interest rates rise rapidly, I'll probably lose money. So I want to put this somewhere where I have more income potential, which means more growth, but more growth means more risk, and I take, can't sleep at night if I am taking more risk. So maybe that income for life will allow you to sleep at night, knowing that no matter what happens to this portfolio, that insurance company is going to back it for life. Now, it's always based on the claims paying ability of the insurance company, so keep that in mind. 
But you can take a normal portfolio of no-load funds and ETFs, and now for anywhere from 1% to 1.3%, pass the longevity risk off to an insurance company and still maintain a normal brokerage account. Now, you have to do this typically through an advisor that charges fees for service. And also, at the same time, that, that advisor is supposed to act as a fiduciary and say, okay, let's say in three years we don't need to do this alternative anymore. Let's say in three years bonds have come up, their interest rates are, you know, 45 to 6% somewhere on the 10-year treasury, and, and long-term and bond ladders look attractive again. You can get rid of that portfolio and just go back to normal laddered bond portfolio. So you can do that now. So it's really an annuity killer. If you're trying to do this on your own as a, as a you know, you're trying to do all your investing on your own, you can still look at some of the no-load variable annuity options because you can't do the annuity killer unless you're with a fee advisor. But that's the thing is that people are looking at their bond fund returns saying, what are some of the alternatives? So good, with good bond alternatives, which I'll talk a lot about on Thursday night, you're either looking for something that provides safety of principle with a return potential better than bonds or you know you need to take more risk to get more income and you want to pass that longevity and income risk off to somebody else. So if you're close to retirement, within five years and in retirement, and you're looking for immediate income or income in the very near future, that annuity killer is what I'm talking about. That's, the, that's one where you can say, okay, I'm going to take my bond money and I'm going to get a little bit more aggressive with it because I think stocks are better in the long run, but I, I just want to be able to sleep at night. And I want income that beats bonds. Now, the average bond fund is paying around 3% right now in terms of uh, a, a, a yield, an SEC equivalent yield. Shorter term is even less. It's like 27 to 2.8%. So something like this will allow you to be in a balanced portfolio, put more into equities, but have an income, a current income that's higher than the average bond fund. You are taking more risk in terms of looking at a portfolio and seeing the volatility. But I think that even with the higher fees, a balanced portfolio in the next 10 years will outperform a bond fund in the next 10 years. But if rates go up and I want a ladder bond portfolio, I want to be able to get out of it. I don't want surrender charges. I don't want commissions. You don't want somebody giving you advice based on commissions. You want somebody giving you advice based on fees. Now, that's for people that have an income goal that is, I want, my main concern is income, and I'm going to need it really, really soon or in the near future. But there's still some people out there that, you know, they've got plenty of stocks. They've even got plenty of bonds. They've got too much cash on the sidelines, and they're just not willing. They don't need the income. They're not really – they're not going to need it for, like, five or seven years or so. And they cannot handle principal risk. Those investors are out there, and they're sitting in the banks right now earning well under 1%. Now, there's not much inflation right now, but it's still around 2%. So you're losing money at about 1.5% per year to inflation because you are not willing to take any more risk. So what are some other bond alternatives for more of the principal type investor? Well, Rob and I have been on the radio together. We've been doing it for about 15 years. And until about three years ago, you heard us say all annuities were awful pieces of garbage. Now we say about 99% of annuities are awful pieces of garbage. There, the industry has matured, though, as more and more people get to retirement. 10,000 people a month turn 65. And so you got to look for some alternatives out there. Now, there's a couple of indexed annuities that allow you to get your money out, your principal back out, if you don't want it anymore. Now, an indexed annuity gives you 
a certain percentage of the movement of an index without any downside risk. You do not get the dividends of an index. So if you bought an indexed annuity, thinking that you're going to get 100% of the S&P 500 total return up to a certain rate, you're wrong. You're not getting the dividends. So what it does is it says, okay, each year you get 100% of the price movement of the S&P 500 up to usually a cap of around 4 to 5%. So if the market goes up 10, you'll get 5. If the market goes down 10 that year, you'll just get 0. So all you need is one good year in the market to really beat what you're getting on cash. Now, again, it's based on the claims ability of an insurance company, and you don't want ones that tie your money up where you can't get your principal back out. Because, again, let's say you get three or four years down the road and bonds look super attractive again. You want out of it and be able to go buy the bonds directly. But one that I know of uh, that offers that uh, principal return feature which gives you that cap of 4 or 5%. They also have an income potential where your, your original investment, they say, let's say once you turn 65, they'll take your original investment and simple interest that at 10% to give you a, a payment on that higher amount, 4 or 5% for the rest of your life. That's a pretty good return that I think is going to beat bonds in the next 5 to 10 years. So some decent bond alternatives out there now. We'll talk more about it. If you want to see it live, go to robblack.com, sign up for the seminar. This Thursday evening, 6.30, Palo Alto Elks Club. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Get your calls on the air, 800-516-1220. You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back into the show. I am your host, Chad Burns, Certified Financial Planner. Want to get your calls in the air? Do you have a money question, taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, comments on business, the economy? Call in, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. I will be with Rob Black this Thursday evening at the Elks Club in Palo Alto. All about retirement income planning and bond alternatives. Want to sign up for that? Just go to robblack.com. That's robblack.com. If you want a free code to get in if you're listening to the show today, just email me. Chad at chadburn.com. Or you can email Rob. Rob at robblack.com. I took his cue, well, 15 plus years ago and said, hey, he's got a website in his own name. So I did my own website that same way. <laughs> smart guy in that front. Makes marketing a little bit easier. Now, we're talking about some bond alternatives that are out there. I want to talk, and, and that is really an issue I've got on my website, newfocusfinancial.com, at 10 Pillars of Retirement Income Planning. And look at some bond alternatives is one of them. Two big ones, though, in retirement that are very important. Cash and investing in dividend-paying stocks. Not just high-dividend stocks, but stocks that increase their dividends on a very consistent basis, usually year over year over year. We don't like it with a company does not do it. If they're traditionally doing a dividend increase and all of a sudden they don't, they might not make a you know 20% increase every year 
And even if their five-year average is plus 10%, if in one year they just do a five, but if they go on an average of 10 and all of a sudden they don't do any dividend increase at all, we're selling them. This is something that's wrong, that the management has changed directions on what they're doing or there's a problem that we might not see. Now, why is that important? The people that get hammered in retirement are those people that sell after a correction. They sell good companies after a correction. You're a client of New Focus Financial in March of 2009. We did a company-wide client conference call showing people that here's what corporate revenues have done and here's how far stocks have sold off. There's an oversell. It's based on panic and fear. Do not go anywhere. And sure enough, that was the bottom month of the stock market. The bottom. It was the very bottom that month. And so those that sold never will recover again. Those who maintained balanced portfolios or, or stayed invested and they had cash to live off of during the correction, they're more than whole now. So two, two main pillars of retirement income planning, cash and dividends. So you invest in dividend-increasing stocks because when you retire, you turn on the tap from your bonds and your stocks. Instead of reinvesting those dividends and interest, you turn it on, you feed your cash accounts, you feed your checking account. That's how you pay your bills. And good companies continue to pay dividends and often increase their dividends even during a recession, or even during 2008 and 2009. Many of the companies we own continue to increase their dividends. That, gets, that's, that allows us to get paid to wait. Very important in retirement. You're 20 or 30, it's still kind of important, but a lot of small cap growth and a lot of emerging markets might not necessarily pay an increasing dividend, so you're looking for more growth. When you're in retirement, you're looking to get a good portion of the upside of the market with less downside risk. When the market's down 20%, you don't want to be down 20%. You might only be comfortable with anywhere from a 7 to 10% decline in a big correction like that. So cash is also king in a market correction. When you're 20, 30, 40, and you're accumulating wealth, timing the market does not make a difference. There's no trader out there that's going to put his net worth out there. I can time the market consistently and perfectly each and every year, and here's how I outperform the S&P 500, including the tax hits that they take for short-term trading. Bob and I have been doing this for 20 years. I've yet to have somebody sit down and say, here it is. Here's how I do it each and every time and call it right. In fact, when you see things in your portfolio, hey, this has a good 10-year average return, but it got hit last year and the year before, odds are that's the best place to be at some point in the next three years. So start accumulating. Everybody knows emerging markets are having problems. They've got currency flow issues and some inflation issues. Why don't you be like Warren Buffett and start to buy things when they're on sale? Nobody likes them, right? Now, why do you have cash though in retirement? Timing is everything in retirement. I show examples of two situations, one where somebody retires at the beginning of a bull market versus flipping those returns around and you retire towards the end of a bull market where you got really good returns in the beginning and then bad returns at the end. Very different scenarios. Very different scenarios. Dollar cost averaging out of a portfolio in retirement doesn't work. It's not smart enough. Also in market history, when I got into the business 20 plus years ago, I was actually majoring in engineering and math, so I loved spreadsheets, loved history, loved the idea that things tend to return to the mean. And I noticed that the market had only corrected at that point in time when I got in the business three years in a row, only once, right after the Great Depression. And then the other worst years were 73 and 74 when the market was down 60%, but also the market, or down 40%. And then the following two years, the market was up 60%. 
And since I started in the business with my grandfather working with retired clients and people older than even he was, seeing that, said, okay, we've got to always be able to weather any kind of a storm and have enough cash to get through market corrections because it tends to last two to three years down and anywhere from two to five years back up. So we've got to have a plan in action so that the portfolio can recover. So that's why you always want at least three years' worth of portfolio draws in cash. So if, you're, if you need a 100 grand a year and you're getting 50 grand from Social Security and a pension, you're going to get 40 grand from your portfolio, which means you need 150,000 in cash. No risk. Things like T-bills, things like FDIC-insured money markets, I-bonds, when those look attractive. Don't, don't look at those until, again, until May. You really probably won't want to buy those at all this year since base rates are zero. Let me give you an example, though. This is a real-life example of a client that I was working with since '03, And this is an engineer from Intel. And we've been managing their portfolio for a long period of time. The guy retired fairly early. And being an engineer, without a lot of hobbies and kind of forced into early retirement because of a package that Intel gave, started paying too much attention to portfolio and, and started reading sites where he's got, got this conspiracy theory against mutual funds and black pools and blah, 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 blah. And said, okay, I don't want to ever own mutual funds. I think there's a conspiracy and they're always going to work against you. So we went from saying, okay, here's a, a balanced type of a portfolio, 70-30, that we're going to transition to more conservative as you retire. I need you right now, since you're retired and your wife's about to retire, to get three years' worth of expenses in cash, which they would not do. They wouldn't pay attention to that. And finally, we just parted ways because they wanted to go more aggressive, 100% into individual stocks. This is, by the time they parted ways, this was about 2007. So at that point, they sold everything and went individual stocks, right? So 2008 comes along. And the problem, the other problem they had, too, is that they were younger and pulling 6% of their portfolio to live without any cash to weather any kind of a storm. They had about a $1.8 million portfolio at the time. So they, you know, essentially if they cut expenses and did some things right, they could have retired. But they were drawing too much. At that age, you want to look at like 35 to 4% at the most. They were drawing 6 So he's got one8 invested fully in 100% stocks, S&P 500 type stocks. 2008 comes along, 38% decline. Not only was it a 38% decline, which everybody that was in the S&P 500 and stayed in it, they've recovered some plus some, but it was a 38% decline, and then they had to pull another 120 grand or 6% out to live that year. So they went from, in 2008, by my estimates, $1.8 million all the way down to 996000 And then they continued to pull money out. And so they went from $1.8 million by 2013, $1.4 million. So here's the returns of the S&P 500. 2008, down 38%. But 2009, up 26. 2010, up 15. 2011, up 2. 2012, which was final recovery time, up 16%. And then 2013, up about 32% with dividends reinvested. But they were pulling money out the whole time. So even though the market has recovered and then gone higher, their portfolio has declined by $400,000. If they would have just listened and had three years' worth of expenses to cash to live off of during 2008, 2009, 2010, what that would have mean when instead of investing $1.8 million in the portfolio, which is now one, worth 
my recommendation was that they only put in 1.4, a little over 1.4 million into the portfolio, have 360,000 in cash on the sidelines. That means they don't have to watch something drop and then pull more out so it doesn't recover. If they would have done that, if they could have lived off other assets between 2008 and 2013, cash and other income sources, they would have started with less in the market, 1.44 million, 1,440,000. But by today, if it was an S&P 500 type of return, and this is just an example because this is something that happened and I assume they stayed in S&P 500 type stocks, their portfolio would be worth $2 million, over $600,000 more in this hypothetical example of somebody that didn't listen to instructions on having enough cash. There's just as much risk in investing too aggressively as there is too conservatively. And you can beat the market in the long run in retirement, even by having average annual returns that are lower in the market if you have a better withdrawal strategy. As long as you're not drawing on your portfolio after a decline, Typically, we have 3 5 to 7% declines every year. But every, you know, five years or so, you get that 15 to 20% correction. Those are the years that you cannot afford to withdraw and sell at the bottom. So you've got to have a smarter strategy. You've got to have some cash, some bonds, some bond alternatives, and you can end up ahead of the game, even above stocks, even if the average annual return is higher. Want to get your calls in there? It's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220 to get your calls in there. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. Go to robblack.com to sign up for the event Thursday night. to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW and iHeart Radio Station. Welcome back into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burns, Certified Financial Planner. Going to be with Rob Black Thursday evening, talking about kind of my rules of retirement, how to set up portfolios, cash, calculating the expenses, bonds, bonds alternatives. Sign up, robblack.com or chadburton.com. And uh, if you want the code to get in for free, if you're listening to the show today, shoot me an email, chadchadbird.com, or, or shoot Rob an email, rob at robblack.com. We'll give you the free code since you listen today. And Rob will be back with you tomorrow. Let's go to the phones. If you want to get your calls in the air, it's 800-516-1220. If you have a money question, it's 800-516-1220. we got John from somewhere in the East Bay. John, how are you? Hi, Chad. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. So my question is, um, regarding the three years of cash that you recommend people have in retirement. Yeah, um, three years' worth of portfolio draws is really the key. So you got to calculate how much you're going to need to draw from your portfolio over and above pension, Social Security, rental income, and things like that. And three years of that draw should be in cash. And with regard to that, how do you recommend people, like in 40s, plan to raise that over the years so that they'll have it when when they need it, when they start retirement. Because I've listened to the story you said about the guy from Intel that retired and you, you told him to get three years' worth 
know, after he had retired. But I imagine that's probably not the ideal way to plan to raise that money. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, and unfortunately it would have been the ideal way because, you know, through 2006 when I was pounding the table trying to get him to do that, they wouldn't do it, and we've already had a market upswing since 2002. Um, so it was a perfect time to do it. Now, there was a lot of clients that I had at that period of time that um, just, you know, hey, the market's going to go up forever. It's it's a new economy. Everybody's buying houses, blah, 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 blah. And they wouldn't they didn't want to get out of the market, so you can sometimes do, like, structured note CDs where, where you get, you know, a three- to five-year CD where your return is based on a portion of the upside of the market without downside risk. And those are okay as long as they're FDIC-insured and, and you're getting it, you know, through a brokerage firm or bank that doesn't charge you fees to do it. Um, in terms of a 40-year-old, unless you're going to retire at 50, I wouldn't worry about it. Now, when you're 45 or 50 and you start looking out and saying, okay, I'm 10 years from retirement, I need to start adding to an area to accumulate cash-type investments. One of my favorite things to start buying if, if when we get back to a normal rate of inflation is you could set up an I-bond purchase and just buy I-bonds monthly. Um, right out of your checking account and start accumulating those or a little bit into a stable value fund if you have one inside your 401k and just start accumulating in those areas. Um, if you're 10 years from retirement, you really have to have a plan to say, how am I going to do this? Either I'm going to slowly peel gains each year to hide that away and, and start accumulating my cash or I'm going to contribute to a certain area inside my portfolio in order to accumulate the cash. Like, for example, if you're, you know, five years from retirement right now and you've got a 50-50 stock bond portfolio and your bond choices are horrible inside your 401K and you know you need three years' worth of portfolio draws in cash because you're retiring soon, I would probably take that from the bond side of the portfolio and create the cash somewhere. And also, if you're 55 or older in your 401K and you've got cash in there, you can actually do an in-service rollover in most cases, roll that cash out into an IRA account and, and you know get it into a structured note CD or some other type of a three- to six-month rolling CD at your bank. Um, so it kind of depends. I wouldn't really worry about it until you're 10 years from retirement. 40, I wouldn't, you know. You always want to have a little cash, a little powder dry in your portfolio, but you don't need the three years yet. Um, again, if bond, if I bonds become attractive, you'll probably hear me, you know, kind of pound the table on the show about it again. Um, but right now they're just not super attractive. Does that make sense, John? Does that help you out a little bit? Ah, okay. John is gone. If you want to get Charles in there, ask him any questions, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. If you got a money question, taxes, insurance, retirement planning, investing, love to talk to you. Shoot me an email, chat at chadburn.com. Now, one of the big things, too, and, and that you have to be responsible about now in retirement with the current bond environment is when you take Social Security. It's extremely important. Now, it's been, the, it's been one of the hottest and most little-known financial topics a couple of years ago. People were just kind of taking Social Security early, thinking that the government's going to run out of money. Now that we see what the Federal Reserve is doing, I mean, the government's going to print its way out of Social Security for those that have it. Now, will it change? Yes. Hopefully, in two years, that'll be a big topic of discussion is changing the Social Security system for people that are younger. But for people that are older, it's likely not going to change much. If you're over 55, I wouldn't worry too much about it. You might pay higher taxes on your benefit if you're a high-income earner. But 
it's it's not going to change too much. And the thing that you have to look at is that you never take Social Security between 62 and 66, which is a full retirement age, if you're still working because you get nailed with penalties. So the question is for many people is do I take it at 66? Because if you were born between 43 and 54, your full retirement age is 66. And it gets the you know low, the older you are the later it is you could be almost 67 for for younger boomers so that boom that 66 to age 70 if you have other assets to live off of and you can let your social security mature and you think you're going to you or your spouse will live past age 80 you will likely benefit from letting your social security grow it's about an 8% rate of return and with bonds so low it's almost like a bond alternative and the way it works, if you're married finally jointly, if one of you dies, the survivor keeps the bigger check. The smaller check goes away. So even if you don't think you're healthy, you need to look at it. There's a file suspense strategy, and then there's an age that I'm going to talk about coming back. Oh, boy, I guess you have to find out more at the retirement planning event that Rob and I are doing Thursday night. I'll post a little something on Facebook, at New Focus Financial Group. Go to my website, newfocusfinancial.com, to find links to iTunes, everything else. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about the show. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.